This episode contains discussion of domestic violence and abuse, also loss of life, and so is intended for mature audiences only. Please take care while listening. What do you say to the people who believe in the move that that move says they are? What do you say to them? Wake up, folks. You live in a twilight zone. And they don't want to believe the real truth because they're so brainwashed through the history that video of that day in 1985. That's very powerful. And MOVE uses that for their advantage through the years, showing it through colleges and schools, history. That's a very vital weapon. After more than two years of phone calls and emails, the person you just heard finally agrees to go on the record on the podcast after not speaking publicly for over 30 years. My name is the former Jeannie Africa. This is episode seven. I survived MOVE. Jeannie Africa spent five years in MOVE, from 1976 to 1981. And she has shared her experience with me in more than a dozen phone calls and multiple recorded interviews over the past three years. Jeannie Africa has been processing her experience in MOVE for the past 40 years and is now ready to share it with you in great detail. The first person I met in MOVE was Ishango Akobi, Africa. Jeannie Africa's story in MOVE begins in the late spring of 1976. I was a student at Community College in Social Services, Mental Health, Allied Services, doing my practicum at Natural Halfway House. It was a methadone program, and that's where I met him. He was a volunteer in the music department. How long had you been there before you met Ishango? I would say maybe a couple of weeks to a month when I was introduced to him by another staff person. So he asked me out. Matter of fact, I think I invited him over for dinner, and we had dinner together. And we started a relationship then, sometime around May of 1976. And how quickly were you married? Very quickly, in July of 1976. Oh, wow. Cheney and Ashango were married in Elkton, Maryland, a popular choice for move legal weddings. Remember, Alberta married Gary Wonderland there in 2002, just six weeks after John Gilbride was murdered. Did anyone go with you to get married? No, just me and him. What did you wear? Oh, at the time, a navy blue skirt and top matching with little pump heels. What was he wearing? Well, he always wore like jeans and a t-shirt. It was nothing, um, it wouldn't go into the um, modern day magazine of brides, that's for sure. Do you have any photographs of that day? No. And how old were you? I was 28, and Shanga was a year younger than me. So he was like probably 27. He always talked about MOVE, and I was very inquisitive, wanting to know. I knew a little bit about MOVE only through the newspapers because Louise Africa, she had her article in the Daily News once a week, and I would read them, and I could understand what she was saying. Are you referring to Louise's column in the Philadelphia Tribune called On a MOVE? Yes, but I think it was also in the Daily News. Also, because I always get the daily news every day. So I was curious, and I asked him a lot of questions, asking what the lifestyle was. And he did talk about that he was a mate with somebody in there. Her name was Sharon at the time, but they had a a child together. And uh, he never really went into in-depth details why he left MOVE. But he was still always kind of connected because he still had court dates that I would go with him at City Hall, that he had to go and appear himself at his court dates. I didn't know that much about MOVE, but I was just going along with the flow, what he was saying. Two days after me and Shango were married, he beat me and I had a black eye. I can't tell you specifically what the argument started, but we started just arguing and he just hit me. Had he ever been violent with you before that? No. Because if he would, I would not marry him. I had to go to work with a black eye. That's when I realized that he had a violent 
personality. As time went on, in a short period of time, I was always in an altercation with him. It got so bad that one night I grabbed his dreadlocks and I ripped one of his locks out because I fought back. I mean, I just didn't stand there and let him keep hitting me. It got so bad that he beat me so bad one time that I had one knee down and then one up. And he said, just stay down. And I said, never. You'll never have me fall down to the ground completely. He got tired of hitting me and he left. And that's when I decided I had to do something because he was he was burning my books in college. I was still going to college. He was coming to the college. I had to get security so they could make me enter into the college to go to my classes. And they had to prevent him from coming in. And I realized this is not going to stop. I even went to City Hall, even though I was fearful because my name was Jenny Africa and people knew about African new people. I went, I spoke to somebody in the domestic department, but I turned around. I didn't file anything because I was kind of like trying to protect Move, even though I did not know nobody in Move other than Shango. Then I decided to go to Powhatan Village one day, just in that span of a, of a week um, when I went to City Hall. And um, they were doing their daily activities, car wash what they normally do. And I walk up to them. If I recall, I think Janine was there. And, you know, I always heard about, he was always close to Dalbert. So I knew that name, Dalbert. And uh, he happened to, to be there. And uh, so I introduced myself. And they said, oh, we heard that he got married to somebody. And we just started talking, telling them what was going on. I just don't know what to do with this with Chango, he's beating me, stopping me from going to school. I spent the whole day and evening there um, in one of their apartments. And uh, I met a guy named Charlie. Charlie is Vincent Leapart, who is also John Africa. A middle-aged man, as I could tell. He always had a very calmness and peacefulness around him. I didn't know he was Vincent Leapart till later on while I was in MOVE. We spoke all day long. We talked and what was going on with, with Shango, the beatings, the emotional abuse and sexual abuse by him. There are no coincidences in MOVE. Jeannie meeting the leader right away on the first day is intentional. He told me not to worry no more, that there won't be no more days of him touching me ever again. So I felt very protective in that time frame, in that era that was in MOVE. I felt protected by MOVE against Shango. Shango is a MOVE member. Everything he does is an activity given to him by Vincent. So it seems that Jeannie was his activity, and Shango completed it. And the MOVE family was there. I never left MOVE after, after that day I went there. I stayed with MOVE. Even though I had my own place, I would go back, back and forth at some time. And that's how that started. Jeannie is the third white woman to be recruited into MOVE at this point. At that point, it was obvious that I wasn't going to go back to Shango. We were still legally married. But as time went on, I started a relationship with another MOVE person. At that time, we was talking and he was showing me how the lifestyle was in MOVE and things that they believed in, their philosophy. At the time, I guess you could say that he was like mentoring me. He was the only one really talking to me basically, on a lot of things, how they live, what their diet was, what their philosophy was. We kind of got intimate in the relationship. It was spontaneous, and uh, we just went uh, to another location that they had, and we became intimate. They had a lot of properties, and we went into this property that nobody lived there. There was basically hardly any furniture in there. But it was locked, and he had the key to the door to go in. So one of their apartments down the street, down the hill in Powhatan Village. This apartment, this house that you and this other move member went to, was there furniture in it? Not really. It was, um, you know, maybe crates, maybe a chair here or there, but not your average lifestyle apartment where they had, you know, tables and chairs and TVs and anything like that. No. So it wasn't strange to me when we went there because I already knew how the other apartments looked. Basically, the apartments were stripped of a lot of, didn't have a lot of technology, didn't have, you know, your average um, 
living arrangements, furniture. I, when I looked outside the yard, because it was a two-story, um, like, Victorian house, really, and there was a large dog that was cycling on top of the ground. He had he was dead, but it was a, it was a big-sized dog. And when I asked that, I said, what happened to the dog? He says, well, he just died. And that's how we cycle our animals, you know. The ground will take care of the animal. I said, okay. Because don't forget, I'm in the learning stage. I'm just, you know, taking everything in, taking this knowledge in, because now my frame of mind is moving into the guidelines of move. So they didn't even dig a hole for the dog. The dog is just dead on the ground. Right, in the backyard. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, if they did it later, I don't know, because I didn't, you know, visit this place every day. I think it was only there maybe a day or two, and that was it. You know, I think what when you think back, you know, that was they're processing me to get into the main headquarters. So don't forget where I live, my apartment. I had wall-to-wall carpeting. I had king-size waterbed. I had uh, dining room set. I had couch. You know, so I lived like an average person in the lifestyle. So they were trying to move me away from that kind of lifestyle slowly. So that's where they brought me to this Victorian place, you know, even though I had been to other apartments on Powhatan, not the men headquarters yet. That was later. So I think they were just indoctrinating me in a slow pace. And to see how I was going to react. I I didn't like it because, you know, they, the toilets didn't work, so I had to use a bucket. I used to use I mean, I was roughing it, roughing it. Move is communal, meaning there's no privacy. So Jeannie's mentor, meaning Jeannie is his activity, given to him by Vincent slash John Africa, has brought her to this other location, a move outpost, to consummate their relationship. Meaning, and, and my mate was engaging in lovemaking. And for some reason, I just felt Something was in the air, and I turned around, and there was another move person. Like he was watching, you know. I knew who it was. It was a teenager. And I was upset. I mean, I jumped up. I said, what is going on? I said, I am not for this. Whatever is supposed to be going on, I don't know. And it was just dismissed, and everybody just went their ways. Because I know um, my mate, he even made a comment after we came back to headquarters Telling people I cried all night long. I probably did. I know I hung on to him real tight. That was for sure. Because it was kind of eerie. An eerie house. Like a haunted house. Whomever you are having sex with in MOVE is considered your mate. Ever since then, we were together. We were intimate and lived under the guidelines of MOVE. And we did get married in MOVE's ceremony of being married. And at this time, John Africa, the leader, is the only one who can perform what they refer to as move marriages. We were not at the main headquarters. We were one of the apartments on Powhatan Village. And everybody was there, basically, that I knew that stayed around there in the headquarters. And it was like a big circle, and we had food, and we were eating. And that came up that... um, just pronounced that me and, and this other movement but we're moving in the right direction and Vince asked, is this the way you want to, both of you want to move in, in the direction of move lifestyle and the way we have our marriages and everything that we do is do for move and we agreed this is what we wanted so he basically said okay so you know you and this mate are married now and that's how that was done it was no big elaborate ceremony or anybody was dressed a certain way you know it was just Every day, what we want to do our activities. The person who asked you if you're moving in the same direction and this is what should happen, that was Vince? Yes. Mm -hmm. Charlie. We're not like lifestyle marriages. You didn't go to the Justice of the Peace or church or get married like that. Moose marriage was totally different. Their philosophy of marriage. Two people moving together in the right direction of the move. I wasn't legally divorced with Shango, but they never recognized that legal marriage. Anyways, that was lifestyle. We didn't do anything that was the system or lifestyle. Jeannie, now being move married to an established member, means she has passed the test 
Vincent's test and is trusted to learn, see, and do more for the group, meaning she will be given activities. As I got more involved with activities, I found out that we really are fighting against the government, overthrowing the government any way possible, whatever was necessary to do. And then as we got more violent, it, w- it was very obvious that they were terroristic group, a facade really not being what they were saying, even though it looked appeared that they were eating naturally and moving towards nature and, and everything that they were putting out for the public's use. And they used that very widely. But in the center of MOVE, it was always to overthrow the government, being very terroristic against the government. There was a lot of cell groups within the MOVE organization, and each one had different activities to do. So there were times where certain MOVE members really did not know what certain groups were doing because they were underground activities, they were the sympathizers, and then you had the supporters, and then you would have the one that would be exposing what MOVE was all about. When I was in MOVE, I didn't see the children too much. The children were always somewhere other. They were in headquarters, but they were somewhere wherever. I don't know where they were. I'm assuming probably in the basement. So was MOVE ever about black liberation? I never heard that term, but I knew that there was a cell called Black Guard. Jeannie is saying Black Guard, G-U-A-R-D, not G-O-D. So this new thing about Black liberation, I'm like, really? The teachings of, of John Africa was that we were always the color of life. And that's what I gravitate. <clears throat> I see myself at times as a white person, saw myself as life, you know. But MOVE did a lot of confusement with people. They would have different cells, different names. So they would use this, like, mind game would be like, well, if something was said, then they would know it came from this group or that person so they could pinpoint it. And it's all a mind game. True, there's reality in it, but... That's how they would operate. It was always about confusion. We would always go in court under the name Life Africa and then use a different name, somebody else that might look alike. And when they got them incarcerated, and then they say, that's not me. And when they found out it wasn't them, they would have to release them. And Move always thought that that was so comical, and we'd always use it as an example how mixed the justice system was. They don't even know who they're arresting. They don't do their job right. I tell Jeannie that I've only ever seen one photo of her in MOVE, and she's not identified. Well, at the time when I was in MOVE, a lot was told to me that, you know, we don't take a lot of pictures. And they didn't have a lot of pictures. I'm talking about before the first confrontation. So they would say, you know, make sure you don't allow them to take your picture. And I was fine with that. I mean, I wasn't out for no publicity. I wasn't, you know, trying to reach no stardom or anything like that. When I would do activities at court, they would tell me, Dean, go in court like you're a regular person, like look like you're a reporter. So dress up like lifestyle. And they always told me, don't let your hair go dreadlocked, even though I wanted my hair to go in dreadlocked. I didn't want to put no more shampoo in my hair or I didn't want to put a brush or a comb in my hair. But they told me, no, you can't do that because we need to use you in an activity that you can't look like, you know, like move. And a lot of activities I did underground, getting guns and bombs and stockpiling to fight the system. So now this is the first week of June 1977, and MOVE members are holed up in the headquarters in Powelton Village, surrounded by police with warrants. June 13th, Philadelphia Daily News headline, Police Arrest Second Mover. There's no byline. You can try to smear, you can try to defame John Africa all the fuck you want. You can say all the nasty shit you want about him. That ain't gonna get no goddamn action, but we know it ain't true. Remember, Move Neighbor Tim Hayes, featured in episode three, Vince and the Black Panther, he was there that day. The laundromat that wasn't near the Move thing was crowded. So me and, and, and my little son, Will, we had to go to the laundromat that was right near Move. And we were walking past. And uh, in the previous week, Move had gotten railroad timbers and some other stuff and built like a stockade in the front of the place. And we walked past there and he said, Daddy, is that a real gun? 
and I looked up, and there were three move guys that were in uh, khaki fatigue type things. One gun was a replica. I know a replica when I see it, but the other one was a real M14. M14s were standard U.S. Army issue weapons in the Vietnam War. Quite a few move followers served in Vietnam. By the time we got down to the end of the block, several more of them came out. I saw two real 38 pistols. I know those because my dad carried one when he was the MP in the Army. Then the women started coming out. That was the first time when I got on the phone and uh, I called the police. I was supposed to be there that day, but things um, turned out differently, and I ended up doing underground activity with other MOVE members and with Vincent Leapot because Vincent Leapot wasn't there that day on the platform. He was staying in my house. So while his loyal revolutionary disciples are surrounded by armed police and his very own 17-year-old nephew, Chuck Sims, is getting arrested, John Africa is hanging out in Jeannie's downtown condo with wall-to-wall carpeting, furniture, and he's plotting his next move. There was an activity that Vincent wanted me to do while he was staying with, with me, wanted me to go to New York and drop a, a stink bomb at Radio City in the heart of Times Square. And here I am pregnant. Jeannie is pregnant, along with a few other women in MOVE at this time. And my thing, I questioned him, never said I wouldn't do it. And I thought that that was so unsafe, first of all, for me and my unborn child. And we were so crystallized about life and the protection of life. And here you want one of your family member to go and do that and to just harm people because you drop or even say fire in a theater, people just run. They're just running on impulses. They're not stopping to think, well, I'll go to the exit. They're just running. So there could be a great possibility of stampede and people getting hurt, crushed or even killed. So I questioned him about that, anything, and he was quiet. One thing that Vincent did not like is people questioning and That activity for me was never involved. Jeannie says that Vincent stays about two weeks, and then he and two other MOVE members leave. I didn't know where he went after that. I never really heard from him per se, his voice or being his presence. So now this is the first week of June 1977, and MOVE members are holed up in the headquarters in Powelton Village, surrounded by police with warrants. June 13th, Philadelphia Daily News headline, police arrest second mover. There's no byline. Despite a disguise and a handful of red pepper, Sue Leon Africa, one of the original members of the Radical Move organization, was arrested early yesterday as she tried to leave the group's West Philadelphia headquarters. Sue Leon is Sue Levino, a.k.a. Sue Africa, soon to be known as Rhea. Sue was caught by police assigned to surveil the armed move headquarters after May 20th, 1977, guns on the porch. These police see Sue Africa hail a cab. Police stop the cab. Sue jumps out, wearing an old lady disguise, runs from police while throwing red pepper at them. After a short chase, she's arrested and held on $45,000 bail. She's charged with aggravated assault, weapons offenses, and inciting a riot. I got a phone call from one of the members that were staying with uh, Vincent Leapot, saying that there was something that was left in my basement, and would I go get it, buried in my backyard. Well, when I found out it was a pipe bomb, I told them, I said, well, I'm not going to bury it in my backyard. You had to understand, at this time, I was pregnant with life. And plus, the, the complex that I lived in, there was other people that lived there, that wasn't part of move. They were just regular people living in, in our neighborhood. And I didn't feel that it was safe, so I questioned it. So changed their mind and told me to distribute it somewhere out into the city, which I did eventually do that and put it in a trash container. You had to understand, in Center City, because I lived in Center City of Philadelphia, the, the trash cans were surrounded by cement. The containers were like brick cement. And then they had a trash can in it, and I distributed it into one of them way, way down into Center City. That when Move contacted me, that they had something that I had to deliver to, to Don Glassy, some names and phone numbers where they can regroup and get their equipment refurnished again, meaning arms and rifles and guns and 
whatever they need for the revolution. And it was at one time, you know, it seemed so ironic that they were trying to get an atomic bomb, somebody that worked in the National Armory. So, I mean, sometimes you would think some things were just so far-fetched, something so real, but then something so far-fetched. What was Vincent's plan with getting an atomic bomb? I have no idea. It just seemed that I couldn't even conceived how they could even get one. But as time went on, the news media got a hold of it and certain people were being arrested and Donald Glassy got arrested with other people for firearms and devices. This is July 77, when Donald Glassy and fellow MOVE member William Whitney Smith are arrested as they go to unload weapons and bomb-making supplies into another MOVE member's sister's garage. All of this was part of Donald Glassy's informant agreement with the ATF to avoid prosecution for purchasing firearms for MOVE with false identification. I explained this in detail in Episode 2, Guidelines and Guns. But now you realize that Jeannie is part of this. The hardcore of MOVE was always crystallizing to be overthrowing the government, uh, use whatever we could use them to, you know, misuse their money, whatever the government has to use, overtime on the police, going to court, that was an activity, going to prison was an activity, just using up anything we could that the government had to put out finances. So that was one part of the strategy. Another strategy was being vocal. And they had other activities that people don't realize. They were selling drugs. They'll do whatever is necessary to keep the revolution going on. So they don't care if if, if they don't see them breaking any kind of law because they didn't honor that law. So you're the second person to say that MOVE was selling drugs. How are the other ways that MOVE was financially supporting all of those people? Well, we're all on welfare. First thing, the day I got married with with Shango, the next day we were down the welfare office. He put my name on on his because he was on welfare. Everybody was on welfare. September 3rd, 1977, six MOVE members are arrested in the ATF sting operation, coordinated with MOVE informant and co-founder Donald Glassy. Jeannie is one of the six. They always come early in the morning, like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, banging on the door, and me and another MOVE member were staying there. They came in, it was, um, Fensel was there. And federal government people were there. We know we were in activity. We knew what could happen, that we could get arrested. So it wasn't like no deep surprise. When I got arrested at my house, I didn't know that it was counterfeit money in my house. But the person that was staying with me, which was Greg Howard, when we got arrested, um, the FBI agent came, sat me down. He says, if I know that you're involved with distributing counterfeit money, you're going to have a uh, another federal charge on you. I said, I don't know what you're talking about, because that was the first time I ever knew that that was going on in MOVE. My frame of mind was at that time, you know, they were the enemy, so I was being confronted by the enemy. I got arraigned in front of the judge, told the judge, I said, they didn't even know who they had. They didn't do their homework. I said, I wasn't hiding, and I was going to college in the Genie Africa. My mail was coming to my, my apartment. As Jeannie Africa, people knew me as Jeannie Africa. When they arrested me, they put Jane Doe. They didn't know who I was. They would just see me around move. I said, your huntsmen didn't do their homework. Jeannie says she's released on her own recognizance. I had to report once a week to some kind of office to, to let them know I was still here in town. I was under the jurisdiction of Judge Green. And they treated me very respectful, you know, because at that time we were in conference confrontation. I would tell them, I said, you better take me to court because I'm going underground. My baby, I don't know when my baby's going to be born because I never saw a doctor. I didn't have no due date. I didn't know what, what sex it was. We didn't do that lifestyle stuff. And I told them, soon, and then, and, and then I'm going underground because you ain't going to touch this baby. And they just dropped the charges before I had my baby. So I never went to court. On those charges. Okay, so then you have your baby, Mm -hmm. and you're still in MOVE. Yes. You're out publicly supporting MOVE. Yes. 
But uh, you got to understand, you, you missed a, a lot part of the story. I almost died giving birth to my son. Like all move women, Jeannie is expected to give birth the move way. All natural. No doctors. No technology. Jeannie is having trouble laboring. I just kept bleeding. And I had a friend outside of move, took me outside of the county of Philadelphia to have my son. And I had to have a C-section. And I had to have a blood transfusion because I lost a lot of blood. So my delivery wasn't natural, even though I tried to have it natural. And I couldn't. So I was in the hospital for about eight days. And what was Moo's reaction to you going to the hospital? Well, they're up there, you know, having their confrontation. And what what could they do? I, I survived. They, You know, by their guidelines, I should have cycled because that was natural law. If I couldn't deliver my child and I died through childbirth and the child died through childbirth, then that was the natural state of what was supposed to happen. I violated Moo's law. But I wanted to live, and I wanted my child to live. Shortly before Christmas 1977, Jeannie and her baby boy are released from the hospital. I was still part of MOVE. I would go to court and protest with, with them. Even when they were still on the platform, I, would, I went to MOVE with the baby so they could see the baby and all that. Okay, there is a lot going on at this point. So bear with me for a few minutes while I narrate what Bob and I think are major story points to give you context as it relates to Jeannie Africa's firsthand account as a MOVE member at this time. It's the beginning of 1978. Jeannie is at home with her new baby, but still in MOVE. And there's a lot happening with MOVE during this typical Philadelphia winter of snow, sleet, freezing rain, and bone-chilling temperatures. It's estimated there are 18 MOVE adults and possibly 12 to 15 children, some infants, and dozens of dogs and hundreds of rats living together in the uninsulated, dilapidated, back-to-nature MOVE headquarters. MOVE is still barricaded inside their headquarters, and Philadelphia police have been posted 24-7 outside their headquarters since May 20th, 1977. Wit Africa, who you've heard on this podcast, is inside MOVE headquarters. She's just 15 months old. She's with her parents, 20-year-old Debbie and 22-year-old Mike. MOVE is making headlines, maybe once a week, but not so much about the standoff, more about their ongoing court cases. In January, two MOVE members who got arrested and charged in the John Africa bomb-making plot are found guilty. John Africa, still a fugitive. He could be in Richmond, Virginia with other followers, and they're telling people that they're not MOVE, they're a sect of MOVE called Seed of Wisdom. Philadelphia Daily News headline, February 17th, 1978. MOVE siege costs city 1.2 million. The cost of police surveillance after MOVE walks out onto their platform with guns and threats. That is $4.4 million today. Philadelphia taxpayers are pissed, and the pressure is on city government to get control of this costly and potentially deadly MOVE situation. And other citizens, neighbors of MOVE, are very concerned about the children inside. Multiple calls are made to the Department of Human Services Child Abuse Tip Line, reporting concerns, unsafe conditions, and even information that infants have died in the move house due to exposure to the elements and were buried there. Sue Levino, aka Sue Africa, who was arrested trying to escape move headquarters undetected by disguising herself as an old woman, has just been released from a court-mandated stay at Byberry State Hospital to evaluate whether she was mentally competent to choosing to decline a court-appointed attorney and represent herself on charges of inciting a riot, terroristic threats, and weapons. Sue gets officially cleared to represent herself in court, and her move rhetoric and use of profanity get her case in the news. While Jeannie Africa was questioning her activities, Sue Africa was saying, give me more. Philadelphia Daily News, February 23rd, 1978. Headline, Guerrilla War Note, read at MOVE trial. Byline, David Ratcher. MOVE members brandished guns as they stood on the platform outside their headquarters last May 20th. And the note MOVE member Delbert Africa gave Civil Affairs Inspector George Fensel was sinister as well. If you think this is some kind of joke, 
You better get in touch with the Prime Minister of England, read the note. Don't attempt to enter MOVE headquarters or harm MOVE people unless you want an international incident. We are prepared to hit reservoirs, empty hotels, and apartment houses, close factories, and tie up traffic in major cities of Europe, warned the note Fencil read at the Common Pleas Court Riot Charges trial of MOVE member Sue Leon, who's Sue Levino, Africa. Instead of ending with signatures, the note ends with equations for explosives. During all of this, Sue Africa's son, two-and-a-half-year-old John, named after John Africa, is in the custody of MOVE. Exact location unknown. Saturday night, February 17th, and it's below freezing, when 25-year-old Consuela Dotson, a.k.a. Consuela Africa, exits the fortified MOVE headquarters with her naked, 15-month-old son, known as Lobo. She is arrested on outstanding warrants, and Lobo is placed with his maternal grandmother. When asked about her two other children, both girls, Katricia and Zanetta, ages 7 and 5, Consuela says she did not bring them out of headquarters as well because they were sleeping. A week later, while in custody, she tells police that her girls are in Richmond, Virginia, with the seed of wisdom. I will tell you that Philadelphia authorities are meeting with MOVE at this time, trying to end the standoff. But MOVE's demands, not surprisingly, are not only not realistic, they're really wacky. And that's the point. The strategy of John Africa is not to surrender and compromise. Philadelphia Inquirer, March 8, 1978, headline, Move Blockade is Approved. Byline, Gerald Eder, quote, The city's plan to blockade Move headquarters, shutting off all water and stopping delivery of food, was approved yesterday by Common Pleas Judge G. Fred DeBona. The story goes on, quote, Mayor Rizzo, reacting to the ruling, said in a telephone interview that he was pleased with the order of the court. In this democracy, the law applies equally to all citizens. The city cannot exist if it permits some fugitives from justice to barricade themselves from legal process with the threat of armed violence. This administration has purposely refrained from open physical confrontation to prevent threatened violence, the mayor said. It has now proceeded to a stage of passive escalation designed to resolve the issues peacefully. The blockade order puts MOVE on the front pages every day, which according to our sources in MOVE, say is what they wanted all along. And the drama of the situation is dividing the city and the Powelton Village neighbors around MOVE. People want this to end, but at what cost? Then there are the sympathizers and the faith leaders working with lawyers to overturn the blockade saying it's a violation of MOVE's human rights. No water, food, or electricity is going to the MOVE headquarters. But the city does deliver water and food for the children. And MOVE rejects it. Rizzo is a perfect arch enemy. If they break our law, we'll be there. Meaning? The police will be there, and we'll see who wins. And if you're a betting man, you bet on us. March 17, 1978, Philadelphia Daily News. Headline, The Mood Inside Move. Byline, Kitty Caparella. Quote, In late January, money was tough to come by. The phone service was cut off. They had little support. They were, quote-unquote, down and arguing among themselves. That was the mood in the move compound, drawn by sources close to move and police. At that time, the Back to Nature radicals had been under surveillance for eight months on weapons and riot charges stemming from a May 20th armed standoff with police. Caparella's story goes on to report dissension in the MOVE headquarters, saying that some people wanted to leave, some people wanted to negotiate, and, quote, a split developed between two factions. Delbert or Africa 31 had been the hard-nosed leader, but now... Ishango Chikobi Hakim, 28, wanted more say, a police source said. This is the Ishango who met Jeannie Africa, married her, and got her into move. Brothers Dennis and Chucky Sims Africa, 16 and 18, backed Ishango, but Delbert retained control, 
with Alberta Wicker, 29, Merle Austin, 27, and Edward Goodman, 28, all older and with more clout in the organization. For a couple of days, it was tense. Delbert and a couple of others stood guard with a concealed gun while outside on the porch. It's April 1978. Jeannie Africa and her infant son are in her condo in Center City. She gets a knock on the door. There's a knock on his door, and there was George Fensel and Monsignor Devlin. Fensel is Captain George Fensel of the Philadelphia Police Department Civil Affairs. And with him is Catholic Monsignor Devlin, who has been working to broker a resolution to end the move siege and blockade as peacefully as possible. Asked if they could come in the house, and I said, sure. They came in and was talking about move and the situation. And one of the precise questions they asked me, did I know at any time that anybody at the compound was in any kind of danger? And when I asked him, I said, what do you mean, what kind of dangers is life-threatening? I paused for about a minute because I already knew what was told to me when Vincent was staying with me for a week or so. And I told them the story that Vincent told me what was going to happen to Shango. They always knew that there was going to be a war between the police and move. Always. So he says, when that happens and they come in, we'll be ready. And we'll make it look like the cops shot Chango, but in the long run, we'll do that. We'll cycle him there, but blame it on the cops. So don't worry about Chango, what he's doing and the violations that he does against Move. We use him for a reason that they were going to assassinate Chango when the confrontation came to the head. So what did Fensel and Devlin say when you told them this? Well... They paused for a minute because that's a mouthful. They asked me, would I go there and speak to Shango and let Shango know about that? I told them I would go on one condition. I said, when I go, I'm going to have rifles on my back from your people, and I'm going to have guns in my face by move, just so you know. And I said, and I'm not taking my baby to anybody, releasing to anybody of you. He's going to come with me. So they made the arrangement, and I did go in April, and I shined up, came out from the platform, and I told him what was going to happen to him. And he didn't look surprised. He just looked at me like teary-eyed. How I looked at it, that he knew something was going to happen to him, because there was stuff going on inside of there that a lot of people didn't know internally, a lot of dissension going on. And uh, then I left, and uh, a day or two later, he jumped off the platform, went down the street, and they picked him up. I was there waiting for him, and then we went to go through the process. We went in front of Judge Lynn Abraham. Jeannie is saying Judge Lynn Abraham, who will go on to be the district attorney of Philadelphia. And uh, she put the stipulations we couldn't do, be around that compound so many feet or whatever, couldn't return back. There was no bond or anything like that, at least on his own recondence, from my understanding. And he went his way, and then I went my way. And then, August 8th, 1978, MOVE has reneged on their deal with the city to vacate MOVE headquarters. They're in contempt of court. The police will be in there to drag them out by the backs of their necks. There will be a confrontation this time. There'll be no I don't know. It's up to them whether there's no barricades, Mike. They're going to be taken by force if they resist. No question about that. Children or not. When they come in, though, and, and they uh, say they're going to arrest you, they start taking you outside. What are you doing that kid? It was necessary, man. Which means what? The strategy of John Effort. Which means what? What's right. Which means what? The strategy of John Effort. Okay. By court order... The Philadelphia police arrive with arrest warrants. At 7.20, the bulldozer is used again to clear a basement window, where a Catholic Monsignor tries to talk MOVE members into surrender. MOVE refuses to surrender. Police use tear gas and water cannons to force them out. Firemen are now using deluge guns on the side of the MOVE headquarters. Still no surrender. Then at 8.15, several shots ring out, followed by a barrage of police gunfire. (laughs) 
The story of this first deadly move confrontation with police has always been told that move members were inside move headquarters, 307 and 309 North 33rd. But Jeannie says that move was occupying other spaces. We had a lot of um, different apartments, especially on um, Powhatan Village on 33rd Street. And then there was one right directly across the Lewis Side Street on 33rd and Pearl. And we did have an apartment on the basement floor. Two windows face the side of MOVE headquarters. To pinpoint it even more, exactly where Officer James Ramp was killed, right there on that lawn on the side of the house. There's an an enormous amount of shooting going on. This is Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Murray Dubin. He was there that day. And now there are lots of shots because police are returning fire as well. Officer James Ramp and seven other fire and police are shot. I get away from the window for a few seconds and the shooting stops. So I get back to the window. The move members come out. Twelve adult members finally surrender, carrying 11 mostly naked children between the ages of one and nine years old. Delbert is beaten up right in front of us. They beat the shit out of him. Delbert Africa is brutally beaten by police after exiting the move basement. Officer James Ramp dies. Vincent John Africa is a ghost, but still coordinating his followers from an unknown location. Jeannie Africa is given the above-ground activity of protesting against the arrests of move members for the shootout that results in the death of Officer James Ramp. Jeannie and her son are photographed leading a street protest with Ramona Africa, Louise Africa, Laverne Africa, and Jeanette Patton, later to be known as Pam Africa. This photo of Jeannie is in Move's 2021 self-published booklet, 50 Years on a Move. But Jeannie and her son are not identified. Jeannie is also given the activity to visit Move members at Holmesburg Prison while they're on trial. I would bring my son there, and we would visit and put money on the books for the commissary. I was writing to my former mate. We were no more married with move. He went his way, and and I kind of like this, stayed dormant, did my thing. But we were writing, and he was calling. You did ask too many questions, because if the enemy came to question you, you didn't have an answer, because you didn't know. So a lot of things were kept secret to a lot of people in certain areas. May 13th, 1981, Vincent Lee Part, John Africa, is apprehended on federal warrants for bomb-making charges in Rochester, New York. He's extradited back to Philadelphia to stand trial with his co-defendant, Alfonso Robbins, a.k.a. Mo Africa. Jeannie Africa gets another knock on her front door from the same ATF agents who arrested her in September 1977 for charges related to Vincent's bomb plot. ATF knocked at my door. And we sat down, got talking. They know that I'm still involved with MOVE. I never hid or anything like that. So they knew where I was. And then they tell me about what was going on, this and that. And then they showed me a letter that was written by one of the MOVE members, Sue Africa. They wanted me to read it. I read it. I knew her handwriting because Sue used to write to me while she was incarcerated in the psychiatric ward at the first confrontation in 77. And, um... In the letter, she was saying, Vincent thinks that he's God. He's saying that he's God. What did you think her tone was when she said, Vincent thinks he's God? She was like, not going for it. Like, this guy thinks he's God now. It seemed like she was not um, buying it. Vincent Leapot saying that he's God, then you're calling yourself God. I said, oh, no. This letter... And the way the atmosphere was, I realized this is my time to leave. I'm done with move. Because they asked me would I testify at Vincent Leapot's trial. And I realized that this is probably my outlet to totally cut ties with move without them harassing me or bothering me. And I had a son, and I had to make sure I protected him as best as I could, too. That's why I testified, knowing that that would be the break off completely with move. And that was the only way. Because it's hard to leave move. 
it's not an easy process. So that's how I ended up leaving MOVE the day I testified against Vincent Leapot, a.k.a. John Africa. They did offer me the Witness Protective Program. So I was going to testify, and I told them, no, I'm not hiding. I'm not changing my identity. I didn't hide it. I took a stand when I was with MOVE and what I believed in, and I'm going to take a stand when I realized um, the things that were being revealed to me through a process through years in MOVE that I wasn't going to run from them. So I didn't take the Witness Protective Program. Didn't offer me no money. I just wanted the truth to be known what MOVE was really about. Jeannie testifies in federal court on July 13th, 1981. Can you talk to me about what it was like to be on the witness stand for both the prosecution and in front of, and being questioned by Alfonso while Vincent was there? Can you tell me what that was like? The prosecutor, Mr. Durant, he was fine. He gave me all the respect. Mo, you know, as he went by Mo. They do a lot of dancing around this and that. Of course, Vincent, he's not going to say nothing. He just sat there with glasses on, you know, sunglasses. And I wasn't all that nervous because when you know you're telling the truth and you're telling your life story of your perception of what you went through, through the whole beginning from to, to that end of at the trial, and just told my story. But I told that jury the seriousness of this man, his madness. All he wanted was to overthrow the government. That was his master plan from the beginning. He camouflaged it with religious back-to-nature group, being healthy and just going through a lot of rhetoric. And you would hear a lot of, a lot of people would hear certain of his guidelines that did kind of like a little bizarre. But he says, no, going back to being uncivilized is the best way than being civilized because look what this society, the system is doing. But that just was the cover-up. His main objective was to overthrow the government, whatever cost. Whoever he sacrificed, and all the orders came from him. It didn't come from nobody else. He sanctioned everything. But I told that jury that he will die a martyr. Trust me. The jury returns a verdict of not guilty, and both Alfonso Robbins, a.k.a. Mo Africa, and Vincent Leapart, a.k.a. John Africa, are released. I tried to speak out in court. I tried to tell them how evil this man was, how they would die for anything. There will still be more confrontation. But the jury just didn't understand, didn't want to hear it. And that's why he was let go. Even if he got found guilty and did maybe life in prison or whatever, he would still be recruiting. He still would be putting out that propaganda. He would still be putting out the revolution through prison. Even the MOVE members that did all those years, 40, 42 years in prison, they did their recruiting. Do you think that Philadelphia authorities thought that they understood MOVE, but that MOVE was always out manipulating them? I don't think that they really thought that they could go through with a lot of things. Because we always said, we will fight to the end, to the end. We will cycle ourselves before you come and take any of us. That was always presented to us. And I think the system thought that was, that was hot air at times. But as years went on, when it got to the point where 1985, when the, when the bomb was dropped, all the things that happened in MOVE is under the leadership of Vincent Leapot. Trust me, he's responsible for everything. He's the one that killed James Ramp. He's the one that did everything. He's responsible for everything. He started everything. Jeannie Africa is watching the news on May 13th, 1985. I saw all that happening on TV. Wasn't a nice picture. Wasn't a nice day. Regardless, I wasn't surprised because I tried to tell the people when I testified in 81 that that move was going to die as a martyrs. I tried to tell them that there was no stopping move for whatever they did. Revolution was to destroy the government, because that's really what it was all about. So on that day, it wasn't a surprise, not really. You don't like to see any casualties. You don't want to see people dying. But war is war, and that's what happens. There's casualties in war, and MOVE was at war with America. America was not at war with MOVE. MOVE 
was at war with America. And people failed to realize that. So May 13th, 1985, obviously on the news, there's a big raging fire. The whole city is in shock. What happens to you next? Well, at that time, I was just an average citizen. My son that was born in me, I got a call to the school that he was at, got bomb threat. That in retaliation, they were going to the same thing that the government did to move that they were going to do at that school. My son was just an average student going to that school. He was in the second grade. And I know move know where my son is at. So I call ATF and I kind of let him know what's going on. It's okay. So I went to the school and some of the police officers met me there and I had to go talk to the principal. So I let them know what was going on and why that call was made. Jeannie Africa's account of this threat to her son's school is corroborated by an affidavit she signed on May 16th, 1985. The police officers took me home and they just posted a police officer car in front of my house for about a week. It's now 37 years after the deadly, tragic day of May 13th, 1985, known as the move bombing. And the former Jeannie Africa still wants people to listen to her account of MOVE. Let's not glorify MOVE. Let's not make them victims, you know, and then flip it. A black group being terrorized, black group being always picked on, and what we went through in MOVE. That was always our activity, no matter what. You, you go to court, make sure you get arrested. Go to jail, that's part of the activity. Get beaten, that's part of the activity. But people, you, you didn't know that, that that what we were doing it was always a plot, always a plot for everything to do so MOVE can be recognized and have the news media and always being um, to appear that there's something and they're not. We were very violent people, people that came from all walks of life. There were people that came from the Black Panther, from RAM, from other things, criminal activities, then also incarcerated before they even got into MOVE. You know, they had a history. Then you had good people, you know, that went to school that was trying to make a living and they just got caught up in the philosophy and, and changing and wanting something better. So there's all kinds of different walks of people, you know. But MOVE is very violent, very violent. There's no way that you're going to cover that up anymore. So it goes on and on, but somebody has to come out not just with me, but other former MOVE members that were involved back in the 70s, in the 80s. There are still some out there, but they got to speak out. They got to take a stand so that history, other people, generation that comes up can read really what MOVE was about. And now the stuff that is surfacing from generation of these children, the abuse is, is, is just deplorable. Making them marry certain people, having children at 11, 12 years old, that ain't right. That's wrong. Where's the moral? Where's the ethics? Where's the empathy? There's none. My heart bleeds for those children that grew up with all this abuse. And the government is not, you know, like their hands are tied, but they can untie those hands, you know, but because of 19, first confrontation and the second one in 1985, their thinking is hands off, hands off. And, and where's the justice? Who's going to get justice for the victims that came out of MOVE, especially the children that are now grown? They're suffering. The former Jeannie Africa is currently working on a book about her five years in MOVE. I'm not going to stop telling my perspective, my true life of what I experienced in MOVE. I'm not a victim by a long shot. I am not a victim. I survived. Move. If you or someone you care about is the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out for help by calling the 24-hour National Abuse Hotline, 1-800-799-7233. This phone number will be posted in the show notes and on our social media. If you have any information about children alleged to have been abused or perished in MOVE over the 50-year history, or any information about the 2002 unsolved murder of ex-MOVE member John Gilbride, please reach out to us via email, murderatryansrun at gmail.com, or message us on social media. We will talk to you on or off the record 
anytime. You can also call the Secret Witness Hotline for the Burlington County Prosecutor's Office, currently in charge of the John Gilbride case, 609-267-7667. This number is listed in the show notes and all over our social media. Bob and I love to hear your thoughts and your questions, so definitely reach out. This episode was reported, written, edited, hosted, and executive produced by me, Beth McNamara. Herculean Archival Research and Executive Producing by Robert Helms. Thank you for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.